Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The so-called cocaine cowboys ruled Miami and they would machine gun a whole restaurant and things like that, you know, Scarface type stuff. Oh, wow. And I was a crime reporter, so I got to write about a lot of it. And on one hand, it was awful for the community where I grew up. But on the other hand, as a reporter, these were front page stories. These were the big stories of the day. Hi, this is Christopher Triumph with a new episode of your favorite podcast, Varvet International. Or at least I hope it's your favorite podcast. And I was just exploring StatRahim.com. There's so many lovely coats there now. The Inferno Camo, for instance. It's super cool. I might be a little bit too old for that. No, I am not. It's going to work. And the new Opal Oh my god, that's so cool. It's very glossy, very neat. And of course, the mischievously named Vladimir, colored as the rainbow and in limited edition as well. And some of the proceeds for that go to GLBTQ right organizations. That's so cool too. And a very good cause. So, okay, listener, check out stutterhim.com to find your favorite. And if you don't have a reseller in your town or nearby... There's free shipping all over the world as well. So thank you, Stuttrahim, for that. And thank you for sponsoring the show. Iconic figures of crime literature for the past few decades, Harry Bosch and the Lincoln Lawyer, sprung out of the imagination and research of best-selling author Michael Connolly. Today, 58 million of his books have sold worldwide and he has been translated into 39 foreign languages. Let's make that 60 million and 40 languages. Uh, Nobody's going to fact check that. I don't know why, but I love late bloomers, perhaps because I am one myself. My career didn't really happen until I was like 38. Michael Connolly started his career quite early on in crime as a crime beat reporter in Florida and later at the LA Times. But he didn't debut as an author until he was in his mid-30s. His in-depth knowledge of the crime on the streets in some of the biggest cities in the U.S. may be what makes his book so engaging and popular. I sat down with Connolly in L.A. where he is fully involved in the production of the new TV series based on one of the world's most famous L.A. detectives, Bosch. And that's in production now, led by one of the showrunners behind The Wire and HBO's Treme, and is produced by a Swede. Michael Connolly will fill you in in a bit, so roll the tape, please. I've been doing this thing, uh, instead of a regular sound check, if you could describe the setting or something, or the neighborhood... 
We're in the uh, the studio area of Los Angeles, uh, very like a block from uh, Paramount Pictures, a place that I've had a uh, up and down relationship with over the years. But I haven't been around here, around Paramount, at least for for quite a number of years. But do you like the the neighborhood? Yeah, I I, I like this neighborhood. It has some um, secret kind of gems, secret uh, good places to eat and um, and live and so forth. Yeah, you have a lot going on. Yeah, these days I'm pretty busy. Yeah, it's not, these days it seems like uh, writing books is just a little side part of what else I'm doing. I'm happy that you could squeeze this in. Oh, sure, sure. The Gods of Guilt just uh, was just released in Sweden, mm-hmm. actually, and uh, you have a new Harry Bosch coming out. Uh, I'm probably going to finish writing that this week. Okay, cool. Yeah. Then there's also a little TV series as well. Yeah, with a little TV series with a uh, big uh, Swedish connection, and uh, looking forward to that. We're we're going to start making um, the first season. Uh, right now, we're writing scripts. When did you finish the pilot? The pilot was um, shot in November, edited right up until almost the end of January. It was for Amazon Studios, and and they put their pilots up for streaming for people to. Uh, watch and rate and comment on and so we went through all that process and came out with a lot of um, a high percentage very high percentage of five star reviews and so amazon said let's make a a series let's go forward with uh, the first season and that will be 10 episodes and so we're now in the process of preparing to uh, shoot those that's a rather new way of doing television i guess Well, it's Amazon's just gotten into the game last year. They streamed their shows, which is kind of on the, uh, I guess, the front edge of how television is being consumed these days. It's not decided for sure, but my guess is that it will also be dropped all at once. Um, all ten episodes will go, go up at once, and people can watch them at, when they want to and how they want to. And so, all that is, um, I think, new. It's um, part of. Uh, television at your own convenience um which on a personal level i I totally subscribe to that's pretty much how i watch tv i I stream it or i record it and watch it later i don't really set my schedule by tv schedule and so i was kind of drawn to this um idea because of that just because of my own personal tastes do you consume tv all legit or have you like torrented stuff have i what Uh, have you i think i'm legit yeah <laughs> yeah i mean i stream it through netflix and amazon things like that yeah I mean, do i go to sites that where it's I, i don't even know where those are so i haven't and i, I wouldn't want to do that especially because now i'm going to be putting a show out there that i'm sure will be pirated to some degree you don't actually live in la i have a house here but my permanent residence is in florida i lived in la full-time for 15 years and then about 10 years ago i moved to florida where i'm from And I've, I come back all the time to research my books and, you know, just stay, absorb the city, stay, stay close to it. And so I've had places here, but, you know, technically I live in Florida. But I was th- thinking about that because it feels like, I mean, your job is so much L.A. related. So you must, even when you're not here, you must be here in mind, sort of. Yeah, if I'm writing, then I'm thinking about it because my writing's about L.A. But I reached this point where I just felt it would be good to write about L.A. from afar, you know, come here, research, get what I need, and then go 3,000 miles away and kind of look back when I'm writing. Because I'm, I'm 
pretty fast writer. I'm writing at least one book a year and I'm always looking for ways to make the experience new and changing it up. And so at one point about 10 years ago, now I guess it's about 12 now, I said, let's, you know, when I lived here, I moved all around. I lived here 15 years and lived in seven different places in seven different neighborhoods. And then I just reached a point of where I started thinking about a really big move, move real far away and see what that's like for the writing process. And I actually think it helped, you know, so I didn't come running back two years later. I just now going on 12 years and I still think it, it works well. The move, was it related also to, because you have a daughter, right? Mm -hmm. Was it related to her, her, her in any way? Well, when you when you kind of make a decision or you're heading towards a decision, you you find ways of supporting it, you know. And so I, uh, I, like I said, I'm from Florida. My wife's from Florida. At the time, we had parents living, um, and they were my daughter's grandparents. And so we thought not only for the creative reason but for the family reason my daughter can get to know her her remaining grandparents and that would be a good thing my wife um would be able to be close to her uh, sister and and things like that so you find reasons to support it so that's what we did are you planning to come back here for permanently i don't know about i don't i wouldn't even make a plan i don't know what i'll do permanently i know in this year i've been out here quite a bit probably more so than florida and um that will continue because of the you know the television show and and those kind of requirements as long as i think the uh the uh, show is going well i'm going to be out here a lot but the family is still on the east coast Yeah, they're over there. Um, luckily, um, the main production of the show is going to be uh, beginning in the summer. So as soon as my daughter gets out of school, my family will be coming out because we have a house here and uh, there's room for everybody. Okay, cool. You said somewhere that uh, Los Angeles is a city of unrealized dreams. No, I mean, yeah, I, I think, well, that came out of the question is like, why am I interested in Los Angeles? Why are so many people interested in Los Angeles. And, and I think, you know, part of that answer is that it's a place where people come to to try to realize dreams. And there's, you know, not everyone achieves them. No, not everyone has that great moment. And so you have a lot of haves and have nots. And a lot of it, because of maybe the nature of the entertainment industry, is very much played out in public. You see the limousines, you see the the premieres, you see, you see things, and especially with the media as it is today the internet media and so forth you really there's really a widening gulf between the has and have nots in this in this society and and really particularly in Los Angeles and i think that is interesting to me because from that gulf that span between haves and have not there's a lot of friction you know and uh, i think in that friction is where i find the stories i write about But I'm also thinking that I have never lived here. I've just visited. But at a point, I would guess that all those unrealized dreams would sort of be depressing. I think they can be depressing. Yeah, sure. I mean, especially if that's that, that's your dream that's not being achieved. But it's also, you think about the character of someone who will pick up from wherever they're living, where they're not, where it's not working. I mean, you don't come here because you made all your dreams, or I guess there are some people, but for the most part, people come here because they're missing something, wherever it was they were from. That was my story. I lived, I grew up in Florida. I wanted to be a writer. I was unable to write books that I wanted to get published. I was struggling, and I came here hoping something would happen, and I was one of the lucky ones. Something did happen, and it worked out, and and, and some of my dreams have, have been fulfilled, and, and then some. 
yeah, I mean, I, I think there, it takes a, a character, this always, a kind of a character of always plugging away and hoping, all right, it didn't work out this time, but I'm going to try it again. And so there's, a, there's that kind of personal ethic I think you see a lot in Los Angeles. People don't give up. And, of course, there are people who give up. There is, the, 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 as you mentioned, the depression. I think that does overtake many people, and that's part of that gulf that I'm talking about, those that have given up, those who don't have it, and those who do have it. Do you get to hang out with the ones who didn't succeed as well? I don't know if I hang out with anybody. Um, as a writer, you know, I'm mostly in a room by myself. But, I mean, I think I certainly see it when you move around the city. I mean, now I'm, I'm moving in a uh, world of television where there's, so, you know, every time you go into a studio to pitch a project, the waiting room is filled with people wanting to pitch their project. And not everyone's going to get picked up. Not everyone's going to get the, the go-ahead to write a script. And so I think you're, in, you know, you can call it competition, but you can also talk at it, look at it in terms of the people who um, are going to make it and those who are not. Well, I guess it's hard for you to guess, but but would you say that most people in Los Angeles are in a place that they don't want to be? No, I wouldn't. Fair enough. As I said, I'm visiting. What are your watering holes in Los Angeles? My watering holes? Yeah. You mean like bars and stuff? I mean, I don't drink, so I don't go to bars. Oh, you don't? No. So, Me neither. You know, I, I, what I do is I come to Los Angeles to get inspired. And what do I do? I write books about lawyers and detectives and things like that. So I hang around with people that do these kind of jobs that I write about and, and kind of wait and hope that I'll see something or I'll hear something or I'll learn a story. That inspires me. So I don't know about watering holes, but I know a lot of good places have lunch that are near police stations and, and courthouses because that's often where I meet people. And um, so that's that's largely what I do. But you know, at night, more often than not, you'll just find me in my room writing. Yeah, I'm curious about your name. Is it Scottish or Irish? Or? Irish. Yeah. Yeah. What's your ancestry? Is it's 100% Irish. Okay. Yeah. All my grandparents and so forth came from ireland when at what time well at different times but i'm fourth generation so it'd be like great grandparents came from ireland have you been back of course you have i've been back many times but mostly on book tours i've not gone back to research ancestry that for some reason that doesn't intrigue me i have brothers and sisters who have gone back and i know the whole story and all that kind of stuff but i'm not the one who's going back to find it Do you have an, any idea why you don't? <laughs> I, do, I don't know. I also don't like reading very old books. I like, I'm very contemporary in my interests, and I think that has something to do with it. I mean, I love Ireland. It's one of my favorite places to visit. I think Dublin's one of the best cities that I know. But it's just from my experiences as a traveler, not because of my Irish descent or uh, Irish nostalgia. It's just... I don't know, it's just the way I am. Is it the same with uh, movies? Is it hard for you to watch movies that don't take place in the present? Yeah, to, yeah, to a great extent. And I don't, again, I don't know why that is, but here's an example. I was growing up, I loved reading crime fiction and true crime, but I was only reading contemporary stuff. And so that was really kind of a mistake because I missed all kinds of classic writers and for example i didn't read any raymond chandler but then i went and saw a contemporary movie based on one of his books it was set in the 70s and i watched it in the 70s and that's how i discovered raymond chandler so then that made me read the books and then i realized oh these books are way older than that movie 
but hey, they're pretty good. And then I read all the books, and you know that led me eventually to wanting to be a writer. But for some reason, I'm very much, I guess, of the moment. That's what interests me. What's going on now? And you know, I know it's a, a short-sighted view of things because you can certainly learn about what's going on now by what's happened in the past. I get that, and I think that's actually a theme that ends up in my books, even though I don't feel it myself. Do you feel the same way with music? Actually, I don't with music for some reason because I listen to a lot of jazz from the fifties. I don't know. I, I I seem to cherish that period of time in that in that genre of music, you know. And then my like probably everyone, I'm afflicted with nostalgia. I listen to on the satellite, you know, seventies on seven and eighties on eight, you know, that kind of stuff that I grew up with. So it hasn't really hit me on music, but it does hit me with books, television, movies. The other night, you know, there's a classic L.A. film called. Um, He walked by night, and I, I think it's '56 or '54, and um, I wanted to watch it because of a scene I heard about, which is uh, something I wanted to see. It's basically a scene in the tunnels underneath L.A., which I've used in my books. And someone told me there was you got to watch that movie because of those scenes. It's kind of a connection to your books, so I wanted to watch it, and I basically stopped watching it after I saw those scenes because the movie wasn't gripping to me, and yet it's considered a classic noir film. Speaking of ancestry, uh, you were born in Philadelphia, right? Yes. What do you know about your birth? Not very much. I know I got I uh, had thrush mouth. You know what that is? No. It's probably called something else now, but in the 50s it was called thrush mouth. That means the baby opened his mouth while he was still in the womb and um, liquids went in, and so you get an uh, infection in the throat, and it's called thrush mouth. Okay. And I think a thrush is a, a red bird, so your throat is really red. And so I had to stay extra days in the hospital. That's all I know. Okay. I don't remember this, of course, because no. I was one day old. What did your parents do? At the time, my mom was um, like a homemaker, and my father worked for his father, and they built houses. They were contractors. And that was uh, what was set out for you to do as well? I... It wasn't necessarily set out. It was something I was moving towards. It wasn't like you know my father expected me to join him. I, I liked doing it. I, I grew up working for him you know, on weekends and in high school, and, and I've always liked being on construction sites and... Um, And then you see, you know, something from your labor. You you build something, or you build part of that project. And so I like that, and I like the idea of fulfillment that would come from it. So I, that was where I was heading until I got sidetracked by reading Raymond Chandler and, and and other writers. Because you you realized that really early that that was what you wanted to do. Writing. Writing. Yeah. I don't know if it was that early. I mean, you always hear these writers go, like, I knew I wanted to be a writer when I was eight or nine. I, I was a reader, but I didn't know I wanted to be a writer until I was about 19. And I was in college, and I was taking courses for engineering and construction, and I was going down that road, and then suddenly I took that a big turn. Do you have some of that interest uh, still in you? I mean, with the constructions and stuff. Yeah, I do. I mean, when we, uh, my wife and I, have bought and renovated several houses in LA and in Florida over the years, um, it seems like we've always done projects, and um, they're pretty much her job. But I always 
get involved in in terms of design and and things like that and i've always enjoyed it yeah people tend to not like renovating but i feel it's so fulfilling when when people when you see it actually happen when it evolves yeah i mean especially if it comes out of your genius or your creativity and um, you you can see a place for what it could be not what it is now i mean i love that idea and that's usually what we've done Uh, we did that with Uh, two or three homes in Los Angeles, and we've done it now um, where we live in Florida. But now you're renting a house here. My house here is, yeah, a leased house. I'm not going to be able to uh, renovate it. or rent. I, I think about when I'm in there what I would do if I owned it, and I would make changes. When you changed AIM at 19 then, did you feel that you got support from home? Yeah, I got, um, surprisingly, I got an amazing amount of support for reasons I didn't really understand at the time. And that was that my father had a a creative streak in him and he had entertained ideas of being a painter when he was about the same age. And he had gone to um, a prestigious art school in Philadelphia to learn to be a painter. But because of the time and because he was having a family, he had to make a living. And so he followed his father into building homes and never got back to that painting idea so when i came around the same age and said i want to pursue this creative idea i have rather than him saying no you can't you have to make a living or blah 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 he said that's great how how do we get you to that point and so it actually was he and and with me um kind of schemed on how i would get into a position to someday take a shot at writing books How long did you live in Philadelphia for? Till I was 12. What can you tell me about that place back then? I lived in the suburbs. I lived in a series of suburbs because my father, you know, would build houses and he would buy, he and his father would build seven or eight houses at once. They'd buy a big piece of land and kind of build a little neighborhood. And so we would move according to where those projects were. So I moved around a lot. And so what I remember about it, which is not a lot, you know, I don't think you, you know, I didn't drive there. I left before I was a driver. And I always think that if you drive in an area, you get to know it. So I don't really feel I knew Pennsylvania a lot. But the one thing that I think was very important that happened was all this moving around made me kind of introverted because, like, you know, I didn't have deeply connected friends because we would move. So I became a reader, and um, so I spent a lot of time by myself reading. And I think that was, if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be sitting here. You know, I think that reading, the baseline of being a voracious reader was needed for eventually the the thought to strike that said, hey, I want to try to do this. I want to try to write these kind of stories, not just read them. Who were you in school then, perhaps when you moved at 12? Were you well-received? Whenever you move, there's cliques and friendships are already made, so you're always going to be an outsider. You can make friends. I made friends, you know, a few friends wherever I went, but but nothing that was would have been the same as if this had been your whole life. You'd been at the school for 10 years or 8 years or whatever. That just wasn't the experience I had. Are you bitter for that? No, no, I mean... It wasn't fun when I went through it, but, you know, lots of kids go through it. It's not a unique experience. And now I look back at it and realize that if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. It takes, I think, somebody who's an introvert, somebody who's a voracious reader to end up doing what I'm doing. And all that came out of 
this kind of lifestyle of moving. Did you get to go to prom and stuff? I never went to a prom. I never went to a homecoming. And it's funny, I have a 17-year-old daughter now who struggles with that kind of stuff. I'm like, will she go to prom and that and I know it's difficult for her, but I also have this long-range view about how it's not really doesn't really matter. Well, I hope it solves itself for her. <laughs> yeah. You said that you you and your father made a scheme, a plan. A pl- you know, it just yeah. sounds like it sounds too good. I mean, it was just it was a long shot, no matter what. But I went home for a weekend from college to say I want to change my major to creative writing from engineering. Big change. And by the time I headed back to school three days later, I was going back to enroll in journalism, not creative writing. And that was what came out of that discussion. It's like, not only do you want to be a writer, but you want to write about these worlds, these specific worlds, the world about crime and detectives and lawyers and things like that. So why don't you go into journalism and get a position, hopefully, where this is the kind of people that you deal with, that you write about, that you talk to, that you get to know, and that would help you hopefully be in a position to someday write about them in terms of fiction and character. And uh, that was a pretty astute observation for for him and, and, and for me to agree, I guess, you know, when I'm 19. But that's where that was where the scheme came in. It was like he was really big on saying, how do you position yourself to take that shot? If you go into creative writing, what do you do? You graduate and then start writing books or do you teach English or, you know, what do you do with creative writing? Whereas if you went into journalism, you could get a job on a newspaper and really get a rich variety of exposure to, to things. And hopefully, and one of those things would be what you want to write about the criminal justice world. And it turns out that's what it was. And, you know, I was able to get on a police a crime beat, police beat, and more or less stay there. I worked at you know three different papers, but at each of the papers, I was able to get that job and keep it. So it w- worked out perfectly then. Yeah, and 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 it does make it when you look back at it, it looks like wow, what what genius, what a master plan, what a scheme. And it really wasn't. It was more like a hopeful thing. And and the other thing is that if you a job in journalism is a pretty interesting job. Say I never wrote a book. I'd probably still be pretty happy because I think I would be seeing things in the world that that few other people get and getting having great experiences. So there was also that aspect of it that this might put you in a position to take that shot, but even if it doesn't, you'll be writing. You said you want to be a writer, and you'll be having a probably a rich and varied professional life. So it was kind of like a, one of those, they didn't use the phrase back then, but a win-win proposition. What was it called back then? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. I yeah. don't know what we would call it. Did you have like in college or so, because you were sort of an outcast in high school, mm-hmm. did you get to bloom socially? At any yeah, time? I think I did. You know, I... I um, one of my first dates in college, um, I, you know, you, by virtue of the way it's set up with dorms and so forth, you have, you take, you know, I went to college at 25,000 students, but it was knocked down to a microcosm of everyone on my hallway and you did stuff together. And I, and I was there for the whole, all my college. I didn't move around or anything like that. So I, it was really probably the first time in my life I had some stability in terms of where I was for a while. So it worked out pretty good. Also, when you get that point, you get to that point where you have that kind of direction. You've had like the lightning strike you, and you suddenly know very fervently 
I want to be a writer. How do I get there? That's when schooling and things really become pretty wonderful, you know, and you're picking what you're looking at, what you're studying. You're knowledgeable about teachers. And, you know, I had teachers who had written books that were published authors, and I had never seen anyone like that before. So it was it was a very exciting time and, and fruitful in terms of, I think, the the blooming of my creativity. Did you write books back then also? No, no, not in college. You know, I would go on, I changed my major to journalism, so most of the writing I was doing was journalism. I didn't attempt to write fiction till pretty soon after, I, maybe within a year after graduating and I was working at a newspaper, I was starting to write fiction at night. It wasn't anything that anyone ever read or I ever sent out. It was all kind of the the learning process. And I wrote, in a space of about six years, I wrote two books that uh, I've never let anyone read. I've never sent them. They weren't good. They weren't uh, worthy of being published. But the second one was a lot better than the first one, so I could see progress. And do you still have them? Yeah, they're like you know in stores somewhere. So at some time, maybe people will get to read them. I don't think so, because I've actually taken measures in my will and so forth to say they shouldn't be published. Okay, cool. And they're not even based in Los Angeles, because I was working in in Florida, and you know, they, it just wouldn't. It doesn't make sense to go back to see the worst stuff you've ever written. No, <laughs> you no. know, even if you're dead and you're not around to have people say, "Hey, this is the worst stuff he's ever written." <laughs> I'd rather not just just go away. Yeah. What was your first paid writing job? I worked for the college newspaper, so and they they didn't pay a lot, but they paid. And then after college, I went to work for a newspaper. So I've I've been paid professionally as a writer of some kind, you know, since I was twenty, fifty eight now, so thirty eight years. I didn't make any money on fiction till I was thirty five. But you you got to actually write about crime and cover mm-hmm. crime in Florida. Yeah. What was the crime situation like? It was pretty crazy because it was um, early 80s and it was when cocaine was king and right before the crack ec- epidemic. And South Florida was a major place where cocaine and other drugs came in. And that created a real aura of violence You know, the so-called cocaine cowboys ruled Miami and they would, you know, machine gun a whole restaurant and things like that. You know, Scarface type stuff. Oh, wow. That was all going on there. And I was a crime reporter, so I got to write about a lot of it. And on one hand, it was awful for the community where I grew up. But on the other hand, as a reporter, these were front page stories. These were the big stories of the day. Um, how lawless it felt at times in, uh, in Miami and South Florida. Did you early on find a way of not getting emotionally involved in that? Or how does it work? Because you get to see really bad stuff, I guess. Well, you don't see as much as people think. A lot of it is you're removed from it because you're a reporter. I mean, the cops see it every day. You do a lot of stuff by telephone. Um, so there there are buffers. I did have instances where I would write or ride along with homicide detectives and see things that were uh, were pretty bad. But I don't know, maybe from being around, I think police officers kind of build a shell around them and maybe that helped me seeing what they did. I adapted that, I don't really know. Have you seen dead people? Have I seen dead people, yeah. Early on? Yeah, yeah, well, from being a newspaper reporter, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I I remember uh, one of the early stories. There was a period of time where, um, because of, um, can't think of the guy's name, but anyway, a very violent and brutal ruler in Haiti, people were getting on the worst kinds of boats and just trying to get to Florida, Haitian refugees, and many of them didn't make it. Their boats capsized in storms and wrote several stories about like 20 dead people washed up on the beach and, you know, going to the beach and seeing them all over the beach is pretty awful. But yeah, I mean, that was part of, if you were the police reporter, you covered all levels of crime. It wasn't just murders, it was accidents and it was, you know, bad stuff. So that, I mean, that was part of the job. Yeah. Did that affect you? I think it affects me to the point that I, I can, just talking about that story now, about the um, Haitian refugees, I remember the name of their boat, everything. You know, so that was a story from 1981. So whatever that is, you know, 35 year, 30, almost 35 years later, I can picture it perfectly in my head. So I guess it did leave a searing memory. Yeah, of course. You said earlier that you moved here, but did you get picked up by the LA Times from your job in Florida? Yeah, I mean, two things were going on. I had written those books privately. No one knew about it other than my wife. And so I had the second. The second one was better than the first, but the second one still wasn't good enough. And so I, I've i often felt in my life the need to change things. And uh, so I thought it's time to make, if I'm gonna, you know, I can't keep trying to write books and not have it happen. I, I felt... You know, my wife and I wanted to make a start a family. We hadn't done that yet because I was writing at night, and we had made a deal that I would have a chance to um, write these, a book and get it published. And so I realized I was running out of time, and I, I thought I could try one more time. And if it didn't work and I couldn't get it published, then it was time to think about just being a newspaper reporter and starting a family. So for that last time, I felt I should really change things around and. You know, I had lots of good stories, lots of good clips, as they say in the newspaper business. I thought I could get a job somewhere else, so I, I sent to three places that were of interest to me: Chicago, Denver, Colorado, and Los Angeles. And basically, my idea was, I'd go to the first place that would take me, and I was lucky that it happened in Los Angeles. How how did you choose those three places? Well, I worked for a paper that was owned. The mother paper was the Chicago Tribune, so I. And I'd been there like on business several times in like the city. And I thought, you know, because it was a corporate connection that I had a good chance to go there. I had some family in Denver and I'd gone out there skiing and so forth and I liked that. And then Los Angeles I'd never been to, but I loved it through fiction and some and some films. And as a writer, the person I was trying to emulate the most was Raymond Chandler and he wrote about Los Angeles. Another writer who was Super influential was Joseph Wambau, and he wrote about Los Angeles. And so I picked Los Angeles just because of that, this idea that the writers who most inspired me wrote about that place, so there must be something about that place that hopefully would rub off on me. And so I sent to these places. I interviewed in all the cities, and uh, the first one to call me and say, we'd like to offer you a job was the Los Angeles Times, so I took it. What was the difference in what you covered here? I, I mean, what was the situation, the job situation, basically? Um, what was the difference? The big difference was, I mean, Los Angeles and South Florida had similarities in this kind of 
destination city. Most people from South Florida weren't born there. They came there. Same thing with Los Angeles. So there was a, there was a correlation or a connection that was similar. Los Angeles is much bigger geographically, much bigger sprawl. It's also much more diverse, um, nature wise. It's got mountains. It's got deserts. It's got oceans. South Florida is basically ocean and beach. And so there is, there is, that was a big difference. I think the diversity of the people was greater out in Los Angeles. As far as the the work on a newspaper, it was also spread out. Like I worked at papers that had one office basically, or one or two offices, and Los Angeles Times had offices everywhere. I started out on the far edge of the city, out in a place called Chatsworth, and you can't get any further away and still be in the city. You know, so it was, it was quite a different. It was a, a big change, even though the stuff I was writing about was fairly much the same. You know, drug murders and. And there's a similarity in crimes. The, the place was quite different. And that, and from that, I thought that was exciting. I think maybe what hurt me was when I got out of school, I ended up working for the newspaper where I grew up. And so it was like a place I knew, you know, since I was 12 years old. I knew it like the back of my hand. And what coming to Los Angeles and not knowing it at all, really helped me and you know going out in the stories almost you know the first couple of years almost every time I would go out to on a story I'd go to a neighborhood I'd never been to before and that was all invigorating it was it was it was just helped me creatively and very quickly after moving here less than a year I started writing a book again taking that third chance and that became the first Harry Bosch book and it got published mm. and and I think it was because of this creative excitement I was feeling about being in a new place and being in the place that had inspired the writers that meant the most to me. Was cocaine the main thing here as well? Well, by then, um, I think I came to Los Angeles in the, um, it was 87. And so we were moving into the crack ep epidemic. And so that uh, crack was really a motivator for a lot of the crime I was writing about in Los Angeles. Is crack and cocaine related? Yeah, uh, crack is a form of cocaine that's been, they call it rocked up. It's been, um, I don't know what, I can't remember what the process is, but you put chemicals in it, it becomes hard and you smoke it as opposed to sniffing it. And the, it's more intense and it's more addictive. And uh, when that invaded some of the communities of Los Angeles, it gave rise to all the violence. You know, back in the late 80s, early 90s, they would have up to 800 murders a year in Los Angeles. I think last year they had 230. So it was just a very violent time when I came here. And on one hand, that's absolutely horrible for a community. But from the standpoint of being a crime reporter, it was amazing. Every day there would be an interesting story to write about, an interesting murder. There's stuff happening all the time. In fact, there were so many murders we couldn't even write about them. That's that's how crazy it was. So we'd have an editor. I'd go to him and say, well, we've had six murders. This is this one. This is that one. And he'd say, all right, write about those two and the other ones. Forget them. And so it's really a newspaper making a editorial decision on the value of people. You know, this person is not worth being written about. It's really kind of cynical and, and strange. What defined a good murder in the newspaper world? Oh, just anything. If it was just like another um, shootout over a rock of crack, well, we've written tons of those stories. So that would. So I think editors are always looking for something new, a new a new angle and an old wrinkle kind of thing. Anything intriguing on how 
the investigators um, approached the case. Anything that involved, you know, a lot of murders happen and arrests aren't made right away. Anytime that, uh, there was a murder and an arrest, that would that would get bumped up to a story level. But it, a lot of times there'd be, you know, so-and-so was shot in a drive-by. He was involved in drug trade. Those kind of stories, there had been dozens and dozens of those written. And so I think those were the kind that would get um, last place in the rankings of whether we write about them. I guess that you were pretty good at your job. I was good at aspects of my job. I've never looked back at myself as a reporter and said I was like the best or anything like that. I mean, there's two two kinds of writer uh, reporters. One, one is a great digger and a person who can create and procure a network of um, sources that help them get stories that no one else has. And then there's uh, great writers, the people who can take the facts that are procured by themselves or by a partner and write a really intriguing and gripping story. And I would guess that you're the second. I would say I was the second. I mean, yeah. I think that's where I was good. If I had the facts, I could write a story that people would want to read to the end. But getting those facts, I wasn't the best at it. And, you know, what, what was beneficial in a place like the Los Angeles Times where I worked was that it was a huge place and they rarely any kind of big story would have more than one reporter on it and so you end up kind of dividing responsibilities and I was known as the guy who would be the writer and you know I, I did do reporting and stuff like that but for the most part I was I was the finesse guy and someone else was the the gatherer did you type on typewriters back then no it was computer yeah I've always um I graduated from college in 1980 and From my first job, I used a computer. I mean, they were pretty archaic computers, but I never worked on a typewriter. Okay. You've spent your whole career writing about crime, and both as a journalist and a novelist. But would you say that the American justice system is working? It works. I don't know if it's working well. I mean, it's, it's definitely a damaged system. Um, I think that's pretty clear from any sampling or survey of of uh, television news or a newspaper or something you see you see the cracks where people fall through you see the cracks where people run through if you read my books i I think you see um, characters who take a broken system and use the cracks or the breakpoints to their advantage who know their way around a broken system but that's that's one question another question is you know would it be better if we had a different system and i don't i don't i think the answer is probably no the system probably does not work 100% at all there's many many examples of where it has failed and failed in really horrible ways but you know at the same time can i come up with a better system i, I you know not that i'm any kind of great legal mind or anything like that but i can't really think of a better way of doing it Okay, but within the system, then would would it be possible to make changes to make the situation better? Because I I would assume that you still have quite a lot of crime here. Yeah, I mean, but I don't think I don't know. These are like huge questions that I'm never going to have the right answers to. But there's two things: one is the prevention of crime, and then one is the prosecution of crime. And the prosecution of crime is where 
I, I mean, for, let me go back up. I, I, the, as far as the prevention of crime goes, I don't know what can be done. I mean, we have police forces. You can always say, okay, we'll double the number of LAPD cops on the street, and maybe it will push down the crime rate. I'm sure it will, but then we're, but it's, there's a practical reality to things. If you double the size of the police department, who pays for that? And will people, wealthy people out in Malibu who are not having crime issues want to double their city taxes? No, they're not. So, so there's, there's a reality and there's, um, you know, like the dreamlike responses to how you fix things. As far as um, the prosecution of crime, it's a system that can be tilted, tilted by money, can be tilted by race, it can be tilted by a lot of things, and these are really intrinsic to it. So how do you take the influence of money out of a justice system where it's founded on this idea that you're, if you're accused of a crime, you're entitled to the best defense possible, and if you have the money, you can get the best lawyer possible. So how do you change that? Do you say all lawyers make the same amount of money and you don't get to choose your lawyer? That really kind of undercuts what the system is based on. And so there's, you can definitely sit here and come up with examples and enlist the problems in the system. But solving them, that is a tremendous task that, uh, you know, from my cynical point of view, I don't see it being possible. Maybe that's why I write about it. I think I, my books do have a, a certain, um, you know, cynical view of the world. And usually within that cynical view of the world is a hopeful person, you know, someone like Harry Bosch who understands the, the frailties of, of the system and, and, the, and the ways it doesn't work. But he's there plugging away, you know, hoping for the best and doing his best and being dedicated. And, you know, I think that kind of wins the day in these books. But I'm curious uh, because, well, I come from Sweden. I don't know if you've been to Sweden. Mm-hmm. Did you like it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been there a couple times. Yeah, for book tours. Mm-hmm. Mm. But we, of course, have class differences as well. But I would say that when it comes to income and so forth, the spread between the most poor and the most rich is so much bigger here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Would you say that if that gap would shrink, do you think there would be less crime? Yeah, I think, as we said at the beginning of the conversation, that the the widening space between the haves and have-nots is is where you can find, I think, the cause for most of um, society's ills. So, I mean, if you brought that more together, I think you would see some of this crime and so forth depressed. But there's no real solution to that, or well, you, you can't see one. I don't see one in this country because then you start having people scream socialism and all these things that the country is based against. Uh, you know, you just see what happens when they try to put out a um, universal uh, medical coverage um, bill um, and and the battles that go on that. It's just I don't think it's reality to think that the people in the one percenters, as they're called are going to share their their wealth because there's an entitlement to it they believe they've they've earned it and so on and so forth like you know I'm not going to get into all their philosophies on why they shouldn't share are you in the 1% I probably am yeah. but I don't I don't look for ways of not paying my taxes or anything like that I mean I I feel like I'm uh, very lucky I don't I mean actually I don't know if I'm in the way 1% of if I am or I'm very close to it I'll say that 
but it's not something that when you start out to be a writer, you would ever think you're going to end up in. And so I, I'm not comfortable in it, you know, and I, I have financial advisors and so forth that, ha- that can tell me all these different ways of avoiding paying taxes. Like, um, now I can't think of his name, the guy who ran against Obama the last time, but I, I just don't pursue that. I have a personal philosophy that is ingrained with these things we're talking about, about the haves and have nots. So I give my fair share. Do you do in charity as well? Yeah. In what way? I have a, a thing called Hieronymus Charities, and we uh, it's a foundation, and uh, we uh, it's mostly stuff I go looking for, but I you know I tithe a, a percentage of my income into it, and then uh, it's actually quite fulfilling to then use that money in ways uh, usually something that struck me. I mean, we do get some applications from people and or organizations and so forth that need help, and we consider that, but. But I would say for for the majority, it's things that my wife and I or family members come upon ourselves to do. Such as? Well, most of it's like education. Um, we, we're lucky that we send our kid, we have one kid, one daughter, to a, a very good private school. But we also send some underprivileged kids to the school as well. We seek them out through the help of the school and so forth. We take care of, we always give back to places that have given to us, like our, our own schooling, the college I went to, um, you know, I do things with them. Very supportive of the, the LAPD Foundation, which is a, kind of the charitable branch of the LAPD, which never has enough money in the budget for equipment and things like that. I mean, you know, many LAPD detectives and others have helped me with my books in terms of advice and expertise and so forth and um and uh like to give back any any in any area but uh, we're talking about LAPD that has helped me. Mm. You had some rather complicated issues to get the TV series Bosch made. Mm-hmm. Rights-wise, could you tell us uh, or or the listeners about that? In the early 90s I was writing these books. I'd written a couple of the Harry Bosch books. I was working full-time as a newspaper reporter. And I just instinctively instinctively knew that if I could get away from my daytime job and just be a full-time focus on my books, they were going to improve. Because it's obvious that if you're writing for a few hours and you have to put it down to go to work for the newspaper for the next eight or ten hours, this disruption of creative focus is going to have a price to it. And so I was looking for ways of getting out, getting away from that. I was definitely reaching my my goal when I was 19 of being a writer, and I wanted to keep at it. So when Hollywood came around and was interested in the Harry Bosch books I had written at that time, which is only two, I took their money, and it was it was um, I, I admit now is a it was a deal I took mostly for the money, not because of the creative aspects of the deal. I knew that money could mean I could go into the uh, my boss's office and say, say I quit. And so I did it. And um, and I don't regret that no matter what happened over the next 20 years. But what happened over the next 20 years is was there was a, about a four or five year space of where they this this place right down the street from where we're talking here, Paramount, made many efforts to make a movie out of out of these books and Harry Bosch they hired some really top-notch screenwriters. They had um, six different scripts written. 
They had brought me in to rewrite some scripts, to advise on some scripts. So there was a concerted effort to come up with a script that was Harry Bosch and that would be worthy of making a film. But they never were worthy of making a film. There's always, they just never quite captured the character. I mean, Harry, especially in the early books, is very internal. It's a lot about what's going on in his head. And that's really hard to get into a script. And uh, so they did a smart thing, and that was they decided not to do it. And they shelved it. And then comes the 10 or 12 years of, of frustration for me. I kept writing Harry Bosch books. The, the series grew and became, went from being obscure to being a bestseller to being a number one bestseller every time a Harry Bosch book came out. But I couldn't get the rights to the character back from Paramount off the shelf. Yeah, because they, they had bought not only the two first books, but also the character. Yeah, and, they, and the, it was a good enough deal. Like I said, I don't really regret this because it got me to become a full-time writer. But they owned the books, and that was just going to go on. There was one kind of asterisk in the deal, one little clause that said after 15 years I could negotiate to get the rights back. And so that after 15 years, that's what I did. I'm sorry, it was after 12 years. 12 years after concerted um, efforts to make a movie stopped, I could do this. And then it became a question of when did they stop? And there was all these kind of legal ramifications and it involved a lawsuit and so forth. And eventually I got the books back just, just um, I guess it's going on three years ago. And this was, this was in the media. It was kind of played out. So one of the um, people who knew what was going on and was the first one to knock on my door, so to speak, once I had the books back, was uh, the Swedish guy named Henrik Baston, who had a company here in Hollywood called, um, it was called something else then, but now it's called Fabrique. And he knew the books really well. He had read the books. He could, as an author, you, you know when people have read your books or not. You know, people can say they have and they can... You, you kind of develop this ability to know whether people are legitimately readers of your work or not. And I, I knew almost right away he, he was totally legit. And what his idea was for the show was would match mine. And that is not like, you know, Harry Bosch mystery of the week, but a long serialized story. And so I, um, he was basically the first guy to knock on my door and I made a deal with him. Mm. Once you got the rights back, there was something about a check. Oh, that I paid? Yeah, yeah. I had to pay to get the rights back. Yeah, ultimately, the agreement involved me paying Paramount more than a million dollars. And so I had to sit there and say, is this worth it? And um, one of my closest advisors has been my longtime editor and now publisher of my books. And I said, you know, if you hit the lottery, so to speak, and you... Um, and you have success on TV, you'd make that money back right away. Not right away, but very quickly. But there was a gamble, you know? I mean, this is a detective story. There's detective stories all over every channel. You know, I think it's about a unique detective. But I had to, once I got to the point where Paramount basically said, okay, you can have the books back, this is the price. And I had to decide, do I want to pay that price? And, um, you know, in, in talking to people that I'm close to, the people who I value, everyone said I wouldn't bet against you on a deal like this. And I had this guy, the Swedish guy, Henrik, saying, we want to do this, and I really think we can do something good. And uh, I, I went ahead and did it. I 
wrote that check, which is pretty tough to do. Sit there, actually write that on a check. And, you know, I, I haven't regretted it, and especially now that I know we're going to get a minimum one season, I know I'm going to break even at least. So I think the gamble has worked out, at least on that level. And uh, But we'll see. I mean, hopefully Harry Bosch will have a, a long life on uh, Amazon TV and uh, and it'll end up being not only a break-even, but a thing that uh, is successful and will help me do other things. Are you happy with uh, how it came out, the pilot? Yeah, I mean, the... It's been my experience when I've watched TV that there's so many things that have to be done, so many balls in the air on a pilot, that usually a show finds its own in the episodes after the pilot. And I think that will be the case with uh, with Harry Bosch. I mean, I'm really happy with the pilot, mostly because the actor, Titus Welliver, I think is is a perfect Harry Bosch. And so he stands out as, you know, this is what we're presenting in the pilot. Some of the machinations and mechanics of of what goes on in the pilot, you know, I think we miss some stuff. I think we'll when we get into production we're going to be able to massage that and and shoot a few more scenes for the pilot and it'll become better. We've already pretty much outlined the season, so I know where we're going and I know what's going to happen and I and I really think the show will take off from the pilot and get better. So when working with television, you do actually outline. Yeah, yeah, I don't outline. It was it's been an amazing uh journey because i don't outline my books and i don't put stuff on the walls and i don't talk about it i just sit there and do it and i make mistakes and i rewrite and i finally get to you know the the words the end and that's how i've been doing it for 20 years and now i'm very intimately involved in this television process and we have eight writers and we sit around a big room for big table and all the walls are covered with cards showing the different beats and and uh steps of the stories and we all talk it out and i went into that thinking i can't work like this this is going to be pretty weird but it turned out to be really really interesting and really fulfilling and and it's really made me think about maybe as i said earlier i'm always looking for a change i'm always looking for new inspiration and so i might change the way i construct my books after this back just shortly to the writing process I've understood that you have some routines that, you, as you said, you have to like blindfold the writing room and and so forth. Yeah, in a way. I mean, I like back when I was doing two jobs: a newspaper by day and books by night. I wrote in the middle of the night, basically. I I don't know why. Maybe because it was it, it was successful eventually. I try to recreate that aura. So now I'm basically a daytime writer, but I have. Actually, had installed in my rental house here in LA, but basically in my main writing room and at home in Tampa, Florida, I have blackout shades and no clocks, and I write by a lamplight and things like that. Um, and it's just, I think, psychologically, it's just I'm trying to recreate those early days when everything was really felt new and and fulfilling and so forth. It's a lot different now that I've written 25 books and I've been doing it for 25 years. You know, so I think I'm just trying to recreate those early days. Do you turn off your phone and so forth? I usually leave it in another room. Yeah, I mean, I, I try to make it like you know, uh, a little dark cube that no one can penetrate. But you know, that's that's the best case scenario. The reality is, like you know, you're going to hear from your editor or something, so you want to have um, the phone nearby and stuff like that. 
I also understood that you you drink an awful amount of uh, iced tea while yeah. writing. Do you make that yourself? Yeah, I mean, I was drinking so much of it, and I was so particular about it that I ended up getting a, like a restaurant brewer and installed it in my house, and I brew iced tea a couple times, a few times a week, and um, very particular about it. What's the Michael Connelly recipe for a perfect iced tea? It's it's a little bit. Of, it's I can't really make a recipe, but you know, you you brew with these big bags of tea leaves. And I do mix decaf and calf, uh, caffeinated together. I don't go for any kind of fruit flavors or anything like that, although I do put lemon in it. But it's really about that brewing process and, you know, the mix of, of the two different tea leaves. Do you use real sugar? No. Okay, so it's unsweetened? Unsweet, yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> Why is that cool? Oh, I don't know. It <laughs> just felt uh, different for a Swede. I think that my perception of iced tea, we are not that big into that. We don't really have that back uh-huh. home. But you have these like pre-mixed bags, right? And they're always sweetened. Oh, okay. Do you b- believe in God? I believe in in the spirituality. I've not made a final decision yet on, like, say, like where we go when we die. I mean, I believe there's something else, but um, the word God has so much involved in it that I hesitate to say, yeah, I believe in God. I believe, you know, I believe in in things like karma and, and spirituality, and I think I practice them. So it must be for some kind of greater, greater good or greater goal. You said early on that you don't drink why is that well it's a kind of a recent thing in my life but um i just i a lot of it has to do with um the opportunities i've been given in the last couple of years and not wanting to basically screw them up and wanting to be completely on my game and alert at all times just you know nothing bad happened i didn't get a dui or anything like that it's just just the personal choice and maybe it has something to do if i'm about to turn 58 my father died when he was 59 and you know being kind of wanting to uh be as healthy as i can and do you work out yeah how i have a gym in my garage and i have a trainer come uh three times a week okay that's good You are one of the most uh, read authors in in the world, but uh, maybe the last ten years or so, the Scandinavians have been like uh, catching up on mm-hmm. you. Are you feeling threatened? No, I mean the good thing is about books is that no one reads just one. I mean it's not like you buy a car and then you got that car for a year. Writing begets writing. You know, if you're thrilled by a book, you're going to look for another one because you want that experience again. And you know, most right, you just you just don't stay with just one writer. Yeah, you might be loyal and read everything this one writer has done and will do, but you're always going to expand your universe. So I, I think when I hear or know of like a writer I've never heard of suddenly capturing the zeitgeist of writers, I mean of readers, um, I think cool because I think they'll eventually they'll come around and find my books. Mm. Would you like to recommend anything? Uh, I re- this is a kind of an odd recommendation. I'll recommend a movie that's about twenty years old, but I just rewatched it, and it's about LAPD detectives, but not so much about LA. It's about them going away to, to work on a case in the South of the United States, and uh, it's called One False Move, and uh, it was actually written by Billy Bob Thornton. Okay, 
and it was a small movie, no no movie stars or anything like that, but uh it's it's a very cool movie. I think it's about twenty years ago old. Maybe we can find it on Pirate Bay. <laughs> Don't tell no, my son. No. Did you see uh, True Detective? Yeah. What do you think about it? I really loved it. Yeah. And I think it's in the it, we're working in the same kind of vein. So mm. when I saw that I was encouraged. You know, because there's a easy there's kind of a quick response from I, I think mostly uninformed people that like, oh no, not another detective story. And it's like any kind of story. It's like they used to say, oh, no, not another serial killer story. But then Silence of the Lambs was a serial killer story that everyone had to see. So as soon as you do something well, it doesn't really matter what's come before it or how much of else uh, other variations of it is out there. If you do something within an established thing, True Detective is certainly an established paradigm, but the characterizations of writing and so forth you know, took it to a to a, a new level and um so I, i really loved it and uh was encouraged by it you know it's the the writer behind it was first a book writer and i think it comes out in its eight episodes much like a book and that's what we hope to do with bosh so you know at the same time whether i was in this business or not i would have loved that show i think i loved it even more knowing what we were trying to do Who would you like me to interview on the Varvet International? I don't know. I mean, I, I like, you know, I'm drawn towards the uh, obscure, so not the obvious type choices. I think, just take L.A. here. There's a writer, um, I think his fourth book's about to come out, so he, he's kind of new on the scene, last maybe five years, named um, P.G. Sturgis. And his take on L.A. is is pretty unique w- within the genre of, of crime. And... Um, He writes about a guy called the Shortcut Man, and um, I think he's a pretty good stylist, pretty interesting stylist. And he also came to this late, and I read um, his author thing on the back, and he had been in the Navy in a, an atomic submarine. He'd been in a rock band. He had a very varied life before, probably in his 50s, he started writing these books. And so I think that would be a pretty interesting interview. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Yes, that's the lovely Michael Connolly for you. And the latest news that I hear about the TV series Bosch is that it's premiering in early 2015 on Amazon TV. And you can already now pre-order his new uh, Bosch book, The Burning Room. And it's online somewhere but it's coming out any day now in november so go buy that and uh, i'll talk to you in a week but before that i have to tell you that the crew uh, doing this is myself christoph triumph my producer is christina jörling biro and the editor is lovisa olsson And the show is sponsored by Stutterheim.com. It's a fantastic site. Go look at it now and try to go there without wanting to buy something. I dare you. Talk to you in a week. Bye-bye. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.